Hello and welcome to Second World Problems, your second favorite world building podcast. I don't know. I don't know if there's another. I just like the two seconds in a row. We're probably your first favorite world building podcast. Let's be optimistic. I am the I am your uh, secondary host uh, Morgan, but this week I am your friendly wraith friend Todd. Hell yeah, you are. Yeah. And I am Finn. I am the host of this podcast, and for this week I am the undisputed power source of this show. I am powerful. I am shiny, and I run this fucking city. I am your ZPM. And if you haven't guessed, we're doing Stargate Atlantis. Yes, a ZPM stands for Zero Point Module. It does. Which is their fictional power source it they is. have in the TV show. Indeed. That looks very pretty. I always about pretty. the Z- I think I made like, because I made, I had like a Harry Potter castle. This is going to already get off on a tangent. Go for it. <laughs> I had a Harry Potter Lego castle and I kind of turned it into, I was like, I, want, I love Stargate Atlantis so much that I made like a little zero point, like put where you could put little zero point is modules. That, is that what they were? Yeah. And like you had three and like they had a shield and they had like missiles and stuff you could control from a chair. Like it was very, so, like, I turned, so you turned Hogwarts into Atlantis. Yeah. I basically did that with Lego. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're doing Stargate Atlantis this week. Um, just begin. The world is the Pegasus galaxy, which is some many light years away from our own Milky Way. Um, a little bit of background on is this the episode. Is this galaxy like a real galaxy? Did they, or did they just make it up? I think it's made up. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I didn't check that. That's fair. <laughs> I probably should have. I just assumed it was made up. Yeah, it's um, fair. So a little bit of background on this episode. I was going to do like a Star Wars mini-sode um, on the Jedi to coincide with my rewatch of Rebels, which I just finished. But then I ordered Master and Apprentice, which is supposed to be a really good book. Um, about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. So we're putting that on hold for a moment until I'm wiser in the Force. Uh, in terms of why we chose Stargate, um, it's because as children we watched Stargate Atlantis a lot. Um, so the Stargate story begins with the Stargate film in 1994 and then um, the series SG-1 in 1997. So as children we did watch both, but Stargate was definitely the one we watched more. And it has five seasons instead of ten, so less content to cover for me. Yeah. And uh, just a head the Pegasus Galaxy is real. I oh, just it is? googled it, yeah. Okay, cool. It's a dwarf irregular galaxy. Sweet. Fun but fact. I I mean I should probably shouldn't have assumed it was fake. <laughs> they tend to know their stuff on yeah. this show. Um the basic premise of the Stargate is that there are ring shaped portals left behind on Earth by a precursor race known as the Ancients. Uh, these Stargates allow for interplanetary and intergalactic travel, and because it is an American show, the ones on Earth are owned by the United States government. Um, Classic. Yeah. And the <laughs> this is only SG One talk, but I'm pretty sure the Russians had one at one point. There's yes. two on Earth. It's there's it, it's there's very, a lot of stuff all over the place. Yeah, it's it, it's a very American show in a lot of its aspects, <laughs> which is not something we necessarily appreciated as children, but in my rewatch of Stargate um, Atlantis that I'm going through right now, I can, I, I'm like, wow, this is quite American. <laughs> um, so the point of using the Stargate is the same as almost every other military sci-fi, which is what this is. It's a military sci-fi. It has to do with exploration and resource collecting. And usually for, for reasons of technological advancement in terms of warfare as well. So that's something like... You should always watch any or consume any media with a little bit of critical thinking, you know, Yeah. just to keep it ahead of like the things that are, you know, potentially problematic. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Militaristic in like, I think it's like. It has a good balance, yeah. though, which we'll get to a bit I feel later. Like there is also like Atlantis. There are a couple episodes because like you have like specifically the scientists who are escorted by the military mm. and sometimes they clash in what their mm. like main prerogative We are going to talk about that later. I do have that in there. But I also like, I just want to point out that like, it's such a, 
it really is just like a great idea for like an episodic TV show. Yeah. It was like every episode's a new planet, essentially. Yeah, like you it's can sort do of that. like it's... Alien of the Week, yeah, um, which is sort of like an X Files thing, but like instead it's sort of like it's an alien plus planet, yeah, plus like you know, it plus complication, yeah, usually like it works, it, it sustained them for two seasons and then potentially like a SGU wasn't great. I did not watch SGU. It was a bit boring because that had a whole, they changed but you the got, dynamic yeah, you, you have all of SG1, which ten is 10 seasons long and then you have five seasons of Stargate Atlantis. Which was cut short, but yes. still, yeah. It was, yeah, it was cancelled and then they were supposed to do a movie and that never happened. Sad. Sadness. I mean, they ended it at least at a good point. Yes, back on Earth. Back on Earth. Um, so in terms of the overview, so the invention for this is medium. So lots of, there's a lot of like naming of devices and science terminology that gets batted around. Um, but the natural environments of the planets they visit are never far departed from what we, what we know because it's all set in Canada. (laughs) So it's like, where in Canada are we today? And you know, the cultures are largely based on earth cultures. They might not be as technologically advanced as we are in modern times but they're all sort of based on something that came came before on earth and it's a pretty generic generic sci-fi setup so not high on the diversity and representation scale um it is early 2000s sort of you know an early 2000s tv show so like it we weren't sort of as um aware of what we didn't talk about as much as the diversity and representation in things but it is but considering it's a militaristic sci-fi it's probably a good thing because it means that, okay, little representation is, I, I would consider the lesser of two evils to bad representation, such as the space Jews trope. Um, so the space Jew is an alien monster animal or other non-human creature that embodies stereotypical aspects of a real world racial, ethnic or religious stereotypes. So sometimes it's intentional or sometimes it's accidental. But it is an issue that a lot of sci-fis tend to run into. So people might think of something like the Ferengi from Star Trek. It's um it's a bit harmful to have that in there. So in terms of Stargate Atlantis, I would say it doesn't have a lot of repre- representation, but it means that they can't abuse that representation in any way. Yeah, true. Um, and they have a little bit. It's Some of it's there. It's just not huge. So you do get moments. It does partake, however, in the space elves trope. Uh, which is, you can read about more on TV tropes, but it's basically the Asgard represent that. It's like a like wise a, sage yeah. um, race who give kind you, of above Who are every above other race. humans, but yeah. they might help them. Um, and yeah, so and in terms of the Asgard, it also comes comes into the fact that they look like Roswell, Roswell Greys. Yeah. Um, so it does partake in that one, but that's not really harmful. It's just there and it's a tie-in with fantasy. Uh, the completeness, so there's a whole galaxy out there and we do see bits and pieces of it, but it is an essentially alien slash incident of the week show um, with a couple of overarching plots. So like there's a sense of containment in every episode unless it has a to be continued. So we never see more or are left to think that there's more unless it contributes in some way to another episode. Uh, so it doesn't leave me feeling like there's more depth there, um, which is sort of a pitfall of being a TV show. So there's, like, for instance, there's only so many places in Canada you can film to make a place look like it's on a different planet. So, like, I'm not, I'm not wondering yeah. what else is on that planet because I'm like, well, it's just Canada. They're all, yeah, and and they, I've been to Canada. They kind of just like, eh, like, 
for for there to be human life, the the planets must be quite similar must be to terraformed. Yeah, and that, like the idea is like the ancients terraformed all these yeah. planets so they could have life. Yeah, and then like the most like, the wraith planet is kind of like they why they do a different wash on yeah. the camera to make it seem a little different. Yeah, but, like it's like and like yeah, sometimes I might go to like a desert planet. Yeah, and that's that's different. Um, but generally because it's filmed, Stargate Atlantis specifically is filmed around British Columbia is very green and there's lots of trees pretty much every planet they visit so it's not like yeah it, it does just doesn't leave me wondering about what else is out there I mean because we know what's out there it's 60 wraith ships and they're coming for earth <laughs> <laughs> um in terms of consistency so I don't know enough about science or technology to know if anything is correct or even real science uh, who's to say? I'm not a scientist, so I don't know. And I and like I'm sure someone has done like a breakdown of every real and fake science that goes on in Stargate Atlantis, but I'm not really interested in that. Um, the one thing I do know, <laughs> this is like the one thing I know. The it? one thing that I do know is that a wormhole can also be called an Einstein-Rosen bridge, which is what Jane Foster theories the Bifrost is in the first Thor movie, which I am less into than when Idris Elba as Heimdall invokes it as dark magic, which is cool. Yeah. Shame he didn't enjoy doing those movies because I love me yeah. some Idris. He was, I really enjoyed him, Heimdall. I'm sad he won't return. Yes. But when he was like, all fathers, let the dark magic move, move through me one more time, I was like, hell yeah. Yeah. I feel cool. that. That's so much cooler. <laughs> I mean, wormholes are cool, but like dark magic is cooler. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's the one thing I do know. I also know that a lot of the, the science in Atlantis is specifically built off stuff they'd learned from like, S- SG1. SG1 so that's all like we, we discovered this fake science yeah. and then like Stargate Atlantis says we've developed <laughs> we've this developed fake science, science. like Naquita generators it's, it's, yeah Naquita isn't real yeah it's just an element they found in yeah. SG1 yeah. that they now use as their like, power source, source. Yeah. yeah okay. which is also like it's wild because it's like oh we, we are exploring other planets we have this completely green power source but yeah. we're not really using it on Earth no we're still <laughs> we're, using it's, coal it's, it's, well it's also like yeah the whole like military keeps well, secrets okay, they have like secrets. a secret power source well but. yeah that's the thing that um, it's owned by the US military who are primarily l- using the Stargate to be like well let's find technological resources for warfare which yes. they try not to I, Stargate Lens is really good at not focusing on that well, aspect when they do focus on it it's warfare for planet like for, we, we are for, pre- preparing for people coming to attack Earth. Yeah. It's not like attacking other countries. We're, we're not, we yeah. are protecting the Earth from yeah. aliens. From, from <laughs> That's why we have aliens called Wraith. militaristic uh, spaceships. Yes. And usually like things like the Daedalus, they're, they're just there to ferry people. Like, yeah. It's basically just like a bus. I mean, yeah. Well, they they can't make them too OP. They have like super weak shields. They don't. They have like missiles and stuff. And then when they get the Asgardian laser, that's yeah. when they start being able to... But they're still like tiny compared mm-hmm. to every other ship. Uh, there's a, yeah. Uh, there's a fun fact about how many Wraith ships there are in the galaxy that I'll share a bit later that I Ooh, okay. to, while I was doing my research. Um, so the setting is the Pegasus ga- galaxy. I again, I'm sorry that I keep coming back to this, but planets that look a lot like Canada. <laughs> um, and then the primary place in that is Atlantis, so the technologically advanced lost city of the ancients. It was abandoned during the war with the Wraith, and the ancients returned to Earth. It is rediscovered following the sco- dis- following the discovery of the Stargate in Antarctica, and travelled to by Doctor Weir and her team. And it's based on the lost city of Atlantis from mythology. Um, there aren't many rules in this, um, I would say, because it is it does follow quite a like, generic militaristic sci-fi th- structure. So the rules in general are stargates use wormholes to travel to other gates. They use symbolic dialing codes to locate which gate to travel to. Which is to do with stars in the sky. Yes, yeah, so it's constellation-based yeah. um, 
It uses mythology as a base, basis for many of its alien races, such as the Egyptian, go- Egyptian gods as the Gua Old and the Asgard, um, using a model of North, Norse mythology as um, the enemies and then allies of the humans in SG-1. Not, it's not as big in Stargate Atlantis. No, though. there's definitely, I think, specifically like the Asgard's not as much, but there is a lot to do with Egypt mythology and the Gould in SG-1. Yeah, but the then... Asgard... Uh, well, they tend to be in the later seasons of SG-1, and then the Asgard also come into yeah. Stargate Atlantis. But um, the Wraith are just a completely made up. They're, they have no well, ties to mythology, That's really. not true. Ooh. Okay. Well, sort of. <laughs> Quasi-mythology. So we'll get there, though. The main enemies of the series are generally evil and self-serving without redemption. There are some exceptions, but generally they're, like, evil and they want to kill us. And then the final rule is science, science, technology, technology generally solves the problems that someone with a gun starts. Or science, science, technology, technology solves a problem that someone messing around with science, science, technology, technology starts. <laughs> I, yeah, you summed it up. <laughs> um, the inhabitants um, under culture um, of what we see from majority of the series, I would say, because, you know, things do switch in and out because it is five seasons long. Dr. Weir's team is so led by Dr. Elizabeth Weir. She is the commander and head of the expedition. Um, Lieutenant, there's, then there's Lieutenant Colonel John Shepard, Major Shepard at the start. He is the military commander. There's Rodney McKay, who is the head scientist. Dr. Carson Beckett, who's their medic and doctor, although he does not make it all the way till season five and is replaced by Jewel Strait. Spoilers. Um, who's doctor name i can't remember uh, uh, i just know it's jewel straight and also she was in a she was in like a season one episode and then she comes back as the doctor she was a wraith uh, she was that um girl wraith who oh turns she into was the yeah Stark. yeah yeah she was yeah y- you're right um then there's lieutenant agent ford who was later replaced on shepherd's team by ronan dex um which is J- our boy jason Mamar. who's gone on to do amazing so, things yes yeah, right um, there's Taylor Amargan, who is an alien um, and joins also joins uh, John Shepard's team. Let's just be, I know a lot of people, alien, alien humanoid. Alien human. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, a lot of, aside from like a couple, most of the aliens in this show are human, unless they're ancient or wraith. Yeah. There's not, like, you. Were, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I couldn't be bothered when you're talking about <laughs> like, stereo- there's like very few like alien races because mm. the, the ancients yeah, it's not seeded like, all that. It's basically it's, humans. It's on not different... like Star Trek where yeah. like you have a billion different aliens, which is something that I like about Star Trek, but it's not something that really comes because it's not, but it's not as mili- militaristic as Stargate. So it makes sense. Um, Bar Ronan, this is basically the, o- well, Bar Ronan and Beckett. This is basically the OG team for the first few seasons and then some characters come in and out. Then there's the Athosians, which is Taylor's people. They're um, not particularly technologically advanced, but they um, pop- populate the mainland that um, Atlantis exists on the seas of. So they exist on the same world. Um, because Not originally, but they because, end up. Well, yeah, because someone started something with a gun. <laughs> You're correct. That's, that's what happened. <laughs> um, there's the Ancients, also known as the um, the Ancestors, Lanteans and gate builders or and quietas. Um, they were the people who left their galaxy for the Milky Way and seeded it with life, same as they did originally in the Pegasus galaxy. Um, some humans, such as John Shepard, share their DNA and have the ancient gene, which allows them to operate ancient technology, such as the puddle jumper, which is their little spaceships. 
Um, they're one of the most advanced races known to have, to have existed in this conception of the world, uh, having evolved for millions of years prior to the present day and reaching their level of technology long before humanity evolved on Earth. Most of the ancients have ascended to a higher plane of existence with near-infinite knowledge and powerful abilities. Um, yeah, Ascension comes up quite a lot in Stargate Atlantis, but no one, aside from actual ancients, unlike because Daniel, I think, it ascends in, in SG-1 and then returns yes, to and human then returns form. returns to human form. Um, I don't think anyone, no one actually ascends in Stargate Atlantis. Rodney almost does. Nearly, but he doesn't. He doesn't, no, because he think in the last second he realizes how to save himself. Yeah. Uh, And then John spent a bunch of time with a bunch of people learning who did. Who did ascend. And he, so he kind of knows a lot about it, but not really. (laughs) Well, he doesn't. (laughs) No. Because when he tries to coach Rodney, he's like, think of clear blue skies (laughs) and Ferris wheels or whatever. Um, the enemies of this series are the wraiths. So the wraith are a vampiric hive-based species that harvest the life force of other humanoid beings for nourishment through the suckers on their right-hand palm, which is pretty gross. Uh, countless worlds in the Pegasus ga- galaxy live in constant fear of the wraith who return periodically to cull their human herds. After taking their fill, the wraith hibernate for centuries, watched over by keepers, which are just wraith who don't hibernate, um, before they wake and feed again. Notable wraith in the series, Bob, Mike, and Todd. Which, Which one's Bob again? Bob's is that the, the first, first one, one they capture? Yeah. yeah. And then Mike is Michael, a recurring villain, and Todd is the best dude. See, M- Michael is... A, is we've talked about guns causing mm. problems, and then this is the perfect example of people, science doing yes. things that then science yes. need to fix. Yes. Um, yeah, we. I, I do have more notes on sort of their the issues with their um, science um, a bit later. But yeah, their experiments are not usually ethical. No, they are not. <laughs> But they're, but they're, they're in, in, a a different different galaxy. Galaxy. in a different galaxy. They make their own ethics. Yeah. Um, and which Todd, is, Todd's which my favourite. Todd. Todd's so good. Um, he's such a good addition to the show. Um, <laughs> that said, one of my other favourite additions to the show is Hermiod, the Asgard on the, Daedal- on the Daedalus. So he's the only really Asgard we see in Stargate Atlantis from memory. All their others are mentioned. Yeah, he has great... Um, interactions with uh mm. there's like the one chief engineer on the devil's yeah. they always have great <laughs> there's also like um or he has a really good line that he shares with rodney rodney gets really excited about some some experiment that they're doing with the to do with the race he gets really excited and he's like aren't you excited and hermiod's like i don't have adrenal glands so no but even if i did i wouldn't be as impressed <laughs> he's so yeah. sassy because they're like essentially like clones of clones of yeah, clones yeah. that's how they they're lost so they're kind of like a bit fucked up yeah. bodily wise well yeah so um I, I think i think it gets mentioned briefly but hermio disappears um halfway through like the light later seasons because all the asgards commit mass suicide yes because their d- dna is so degraded and so there's only like a couple left yeah I think. and like yeah there was like a whole heap of issues that are more to do with sg1 yeah um because there's like we know that we've said that the this is all kidding. We've said that the uh, they're good guys, but there's like one bad one called surprise, surprise Loki. There's a couple <laughs> of bad ones actually, because I'm pretty uh, sure Fenrir is also bad. Oh yeah, there's like a whole cult. There's like a, they're, oh, they and then come there's in. the Dark Asgard as well. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't like, know if you remember that. It's one episode of SG of Stargate Atlantis. Was that the one with the cult, the separate who of their species that went off there's, and lived yeah, in the Pegasus galaxy? Yeah, yes. Yeah, so, and they randomly attack Atlantis yeah, at one point. Yeah, yeah. so um. They they were like, I don't know, what do, so they'll be like, oh, so we have the Aesir, 
and we'll talk about that a bit more later, who are the good Asgard. Um, and then we'll have the Vanir, which is, and this, like I said, it's all based on Norse mythology, yep. who are the bad Asgard, the, the lost Asgard, the dark Asgard. Um, and yeah, they split off, but they have the same problem um, with their like DNA de- like The bad guys are just happy to experiment on humans because that was what their original form was close to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're descended from, yeah, they were originally humanoid. Um, so the rather than, um, you know, do unethical experiments, the original Asgard, the Aesir, decide to commit mass suicide um, and and then, yeah, just sort of leave it at that. So does that mean, so I'm always confused because I know they did that, but Hermiad decides not to? or was... I'm pretty sure Hermiad is, Hermiad takes part because after a while he's not seen in the series anymore. So there's just none left. <laughs> just none, except for the the other guys. Yeah, the bad ones. Because they, they think they found like the the cure to their ge- degeneration of DNA, but it does involve a lot of unethical things. Yes. Um, and that does. wasn't something that the the other Asgard were willing to do, I think. They didn't want to compromise their ethics, which is Which is amazing admirable. for this show. Yeah. Because <laughs> everyone's doing it. Um, I think that's that's what happens. But, I mean, um, I don't think I've ever actually watched... I haven't gone to the episodes where that's talked about yet and if it's talked about in Saga Atlantis and if I don't think I ever watched the episodes in SG-1 that deal with it. But yes, so in terms of society, um, we, we've just talked about this, but there's a lot of experimentation that seems at best ill-considered and at worst blatantly inhumane, such as turning race human via a retrovirus because you just don't, like, I just don't think, like, I know that they're your enemy and that they want, they feed on humans. But I also think that that's not a good idea. Yeah. And they're kind of like, oh, they were once human. We're saving them. It's yeah. like, this is a weird... Something about this, though, is I think you'll find, like, for the scientists are usually a bit more like they have the blind ambition and want to yeah. do it. And then it's like the military personnel who are like, maybe we shouldn't, which is an interesting... Generally, when it comes to, to Wraith, Ronan Dex is the guy who's like, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And, like, he hates Wraith, but he's like, Nah, this yeah. is a bad idea. Well, he's like, no, he's like, just kill it. Yeah, like, he's just, just, he's like, just, just kill, kill it every time. Just, just kill it. They're bad. Um, don't try and save them. Um, so the experimentation is by ancients, by wraith, by planet randos, and by our heroes of the story. So it's done by everyone. The ancients also had plenty of questionable experiments. I mean, the wraith, it's less questionable because they don't really have as they don't really follow the moral code that we do. Um, and then Planet Randos also do it. Like you think of like the Hothans yeah. who who decide to go ahead with an inoculation that kills half their population. Um, as a child, I was not a big fan of the Raiders Bugmen that Michael creates. I'm a frequent writer. I watched that episode actually the other day and now I'm just like, oh, they're just men in weird suits. But prior to that, I was a frequent writer of the Nope Train for the Bugmen. Yeah, because there's, there's different. There's like... The original one, which is like Big Bug, big which bug. is kind of like now yeah. I want to rewatch that episode because I recently rewatched Alien and I want to see some if there's don't, some similarities between don't like love the Big Bug because they're like it's similar like a big guy running around in a big suit mm. in like a confined space. So I, I'm sure they've drawn some similarities that I didn't pick up on mm. the kid. And then there's the ones later on that are like no fat. They're like weird. They have the smoke that come out of their gills, mm. and that's that's the one with the uh, all female team. It's a kind of like yeah. a female power episode. Yeah. I don't like either of either of those Bugmen. Not here for the bugs. In fact, Eratus bugs suck as a principle um, because they're they're the ancestors of the race, yeah. so obviously. <laughs> um, Stargate Atlantis follows a convention set out by SG-1 in that it also revolves around the tension between the military and the humanist components of the mission, which is something we mentioned earlier. So the members of Shepard's team represent wildly different aspects of the ep- expedition, which mix scientists, diplomats, and soldiers. 
um, so having Dr. Weir and then um, Woolsey as the leaders of the expedition places the control primarily in the hands of civilians with specialized skill sets. Yeah, I forgot that was a big part of the series was like, whereas the original, like it was military run. Atlantis is always, well, for the most part, headed by a civilian. And then there's like a couple of times where the military like send people in to yeah. be like, oh, but yeah, it, that is a big... It's often that the military actually give way to the civilian leader. So like you think um, the commander guy from the Daedalus, like he comes in to evaluate Dr. Doc- like dr weir's progress and yeah. he's and in the end he's like no dr weir should i don't want this position dr weir can have it basically yeah. he was kind of like they, they he's like got an interesting character because like he's always kind of presented as like a, the militarized bad guy like mm. let's do this first but then like there's a couple of moments where he like actually shows he has a turning point yeah and it's also like spoiler alert like there's a point where we realize he's been a ghoul the yeah. whole time and it's like he has like a yeah. great character arc he throughout does. the series that's interesting to watch yeah and then he, when he like when the gold is removed from him, he actually apologizes to where he's like, "I know what I did during that time. Yeah, like I was awake and I'm sorry." It was yeah. It, he's he's a very interesting character. Um, where was I? So um, specialized skill sets. Yes. So that does take some of the power away from the military aspects of a military sci-fi, which I think is really good. Um, although obviously the overarching plot does involve a lot of good guys killing aliens with guns. But, you know, like, it's a lot of, they do have a lot of, like, ethical discussions. And, like, you know, there's, you think about, like, Taylor, Taylor is supposed to be on Shepard's team technically as a soldier, but she's often the diplomat. She's the one who de-escalates the situation. She talks it out. Um, well, she offers like, advice. The reason she gets on the team is, like, we need someone who's, like, local in this yeah. galaxy who can help us, like, go between like yeah. yeah the diplomat yeah she's but like she's sort of positioned as a soldier but she's always playing the part of the diplomat that's yeah. what she is but like because they give her a gun you're like oh a soldier but she's not and, like we know she can fight like yeah. she's a fight she can hold her own it's just that yeah she's often the one she's she doesn't want to seek violence first no. she's always about peace first yeah and she yeah she's always the one who gives like she's the one who gives advice rational thought with like wisdom like because she's the leader of her people so. yeah it, it requires that um, that level of leadership and diplomacy. And I think you get a lot of, like, nice moments with Dr. Weir and her because Dr. Weir is the leader of the, yeah. the expedition and, Taylor, and they kind of have... Sometimes they have moments where they clash and it's like, mm. oh, how, why do you see it like this? But sometimes mm. they also, like, agree a lot. It's yeah. And then, like, in contrast, but you get the military leader who is John Shepard yeah. who actually gets along great with Weir, but mm. then sometimes they do clash over, like, decisions because yeah. of the civilian military aspect. It's, yeah. It's cool that you yeah. get all this stuff, and it makes and like, me want to rewatch it more. And they get like, and, and they do a good job in that they they give you like Shepard, who is who is smart, and then you get, then you get Rodney, who is uber smart. But like, there's like, it might be like Taylor being like, okay, Rodney, but like, calm down and and speak it to me plain. And then there'll be John who actually sort of gets it because he's quite smart. And then, then like there's Ronan smart. who's, and then there's like Ronan who's like, can we just shoot it? Yeah, shoot good. <laughs> I love that whole, like, we're just going to talk about something. There's a whole subplot because, like, Rodney thinks he's smart. He yeah. doesn't, he always, I think he often underestimates Shepard. Yeah. It's like the whole thing, like, you, you, you could have been in Mensa. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I took the test yeah. and everything. Like, like Shepard's pretty smart. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so in, in times, I've written in times such as these, it is generally good to think about what messages our media communicates in terms of the problems that come up in militaristic media. Um, sci fi tends as a whole, tends to be a genre a genre that is more progressive than it is conservative. And um, one of the things that actually highlights this, I think, for me, because, I mean, I didn't think about it when we were kids. 
and this is like an early 2000s media. It wasn't necessarily something that was super prevalent. So it's it's only a passing mention. But like at one point, it's like everyone's having a day off. And John Shepard and Ronan are hanging out the entire day. And at one, they go through all these different activities trying to find one that they actually want to do um, sort of together. And they end up back in like Shepard's room and they're like eating popcorn and reading magazines and listening to music. And Shepard asks Ronan and he goes, oh, is there like are you interested in someone? And Ronan goes, oh, like a, like, a, like, a, like a woman. And Shepard goes, or a man. And it's not played as a joke. It's just a genuine question. It's just normal. And, and Ronan doesn't like, he doesn't, he doesn't react in any way that's negative. He just says, he just says, no, I'm not ready for that. Yeah. And it's like, you know that he had a wife, but like, it's not, it's not in any way judgmental that Shepard asked him that. And I think for an early 2000s media, that's pretty good. And in terms of like values, I'm pretty happy with that being yeah. communicated in that way. Considering um, how, how like, like things, like we're only just getting yeah. media that fully embraces the concept of, you know, LGBTQI identities. We're now getting a lot of that, which is great. And um, I'm here for it every day. Yeah. Um, I don't I think- know if you've noticed what my cup says. <laughs> It's a spear queer if it does. Um, but in early 2000s, that, it might have been mentioned in certain mm, texts, yeah. but sci-fi was always a very progressive genre. It was it was easy to do because it's like, well, we have to because we have these aliens. Like, what? how do we have... We have to form these relationships with aliens and it's a good, like, parallel to have, yeah. like... Yeah, and they just treat it as normal. Like, yeah. it's like... Well, and you have to think, like, there's... there's well, there, it's a big expedition. Yeah. But generally, Ronan's hanging out with the guys because he's, you know, he's a soldier. Yeah. That's what he's... And they're most of them, aside from, like, you see, like, Lieutenant Cadman is the main girl you see who's in the military. But most of them are guys. You have to think that after a while, maybe that's what you gravitate to because you might be on this huge base, but you're hanging out with just the guys all yeah. the time. Um, which is why there's a there's probably a lot of fan fiction about Shepard and Ronan. I'm sure there is. Not that I've checked, but I'm sure it's there. <laughs> Without a doubt, I know. Um, it'll be there. So it's yeah, it's just nice that um, you know sci-fi can be this progressive genre where we can think about these both like ethical and moral issues that come up with the fact that it's a militaristic sci-fi, but also we can have representations um, of diversity that we might not have necessarily got back in 2000 in other genres. Um, Star Trek was always really good at it. Stargate Atlantis is not as good, but at least it's still sort of there. Yeah, I think the main thing Stargate Atlantis does is like it's not diff- it's not crazy for the time. It's probably just like, oh, we can have these strong female characters now. Yeah. Like that's we can do that. Yeah, and because there is actually a lot in this show. Yeah, there's because you a got lot. like you start with like Taylor and yeah. Weir, and then, and then, but then you, you also get have- Dr. Keller. And then you get Cadman, yeah, and like, it's... and but like you, you get so many different representations of how to be, yeah, uh, like how to be male, how to be female, because you get you also have like the really smart botanist that Rod- that Rodney's yes. into, who's very empathetic, and like that's just another way that you can be. It's like there's a lot of represe- yeah. representations of how like, to be a person, and there's like diff- yeah, there's like different levels. Like Dr. Keller, I wouldn't say because she's taking over from Beckett is super confident, but she is still very very capable, yeah, and grows into her own it's great it's and it's like yeah it's more acceptable at the time but still it's like cool to see like one of the defining moments i remember about dr keller is that she's like 
she goes off world with Taylor and, she, and like Taylor's got it because Taylor knows what she's doing. She's done this before, but Keller's still sort of green. She's still new and she's still getting used to being at, on Atlantis, let alone off world. And like, she sort of freaks out the entire time. But then like when she's dealing with conflict with the guy who's got a gun on her and like, she gets the gun off him and he says, you're not going to shoot me. You're a doctor. And she, and, like, you're a healer. And she says, well, first I need something to heal and shoots him in the leg. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what you need to do. Um, and and it's, she's right. <laughs> like her life's being threatened. She's in a like position to like to, you know, turn the tables and she does. And she does it in a way that that makes sense for her like character position because she's yeah. still a moral person. She doesn't want she's not shooting to kill. She's just shooting so that way her life will no longer be in danger. Yeah. And anyway, it's very well done. It's <laughs> this is why we love this show. Um <laughs> And then I've written, much like Star Trek, a character's division is represented by the color on their jacket. So when on base, you might notice that they have different colors on the chest. So red for Elizabeth, which is basically command, but she's the only commander. So she's the only one who has red. Yes. Um, and then Woolsey has it later on when we leaves the show. Um, there's black for military. So um, Taylor and Shepard wear and that. Ford, Ronan. Yeah. Ronan doesn't ever wear a He wears jacket. his normal clothes. The yeah, whole time. he wears his normal clothes. Um, there's blue for scientists, so that's what Rodney wears. Yellow for medical and green for operations. I think there's like one person we see in a green jacket. It'll be like someone like up in the control room, right? Potentially. I don't no, know. no, I think they wear blue for scientists. Oh, they do, don't they? Yeah. Maybe there's like one green shirt. There's, like, there's like one the, green there's shirt running around. One green shirt in like a background thing, and I think the botanist wears green, but I'm not sure. Um, in terms of history, so in world history, there isn't a lot, but this is what it is. The ancients were once known as the Alterans, but once uh, but split into two factions, becoming the Ancients and the Ori. The Ori are in um, like way more in SG One and the SG One movies. We don't really and they're bad. Yeah, we don't really see them in Stargate Atlantis. I think they get one mention, and that's it. Um, so I after... think because at that point they it's been passed in SG One, like yeah. they beat them, maybe. Yeah. Um, after their desperate departure from Atlantis 10,000 years ago, the ancients returned to Earth. Upon their return, the ancients found humans in the hunter-gatherer stage of evolution, um, and they were then able to restart the empire. Um, so many ancients bred with the native humans to set a path for the future and create a future civilizations, while well, then others went on and ascended. So that's how humans get the ancient gene. And some were like, I'll sleep with that human hunter-gatherer. <laughs> What a nice hunter that is. And then we'll build a future together and we'll raise civilization up. And some are like, I'm going to become pure energy and like just drift <laughs> around do and do cool stuff. You do that. I'm going to become pure energy. Yeah. You you, you you have fun there. You have fun with that early generator. Like that, yeah. That. You have fun building a civilization. I'm going to become pure energy and just float around the galaxy. What would you do? I think I don't know because they get like really cool powers. When pure energy is the best. The fact is that it's like you, it's like you can be pure energy and like you can just come back as human. Yeah, like Daniel and, did it. Like get, it's like oh, why would I not do but that? Like, and like prior to Ascension, you get all these cool powers. Like you get telekinesis and stuff. Like <laughs> yeah, I would probably choose to ascend and then return as a human because um, I would get all the benefits of ascending, which is like I wouldn't get sick. I would be extremely long lived. All that sort of stuff. I'd be basically immortal. But I would also have my human form, so I wouldn't just be like wandering around like a cloud of dust <laughs> in the universe, just like woo. Um, yeah, that's probably what would you do? I assume the answer yeah, is the same. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. So, in terms of like our history, the story of Atlantis. So, 
The story of Atlantis first appears in Plato's Timaeus. The characters who the character who recites the story of Atlantis tells it because it illustrates one of Athens' greatest ever achievements. So there's like a there has been debate previously. Oh, oh it's, I suppose it's still going on um, about whether Atlantis was actually real or whether it was an allegory um, for basically for Athens and a debate that Plato's trying to illustrate because he does that a lot. So they're like Atlantis isn't real, but some people are like, but is it? Um, <laughs> we haven't found it yet. Well, we'll go on to that. Ooh. Okay. Love so um, this is uh, like, yeah. All right. So this is a quote from the character, I think, who's telling the story because um, I put it in quote marks, but I should have been more clear in my notes. Okay. So the records speak of a vast power that your city once brought to a halt in its insolent march against the whole of Europe and Asia at once, a power that sprang forth from beyond from the Atlantic Ocean. For at that time, this ocean was passable, since it had an island in it, in it in the front of the strait that you people would say you called the Pillars of Hercules, which is the Strait of Gibraltar. This island was larger than Libya and Asia. For the Greeks at that time, Asia was the Nile to the Hellespont, so smaller, um, combined. And it provided passage to other islands for people who travelled in those days. From those islands, one could then travel to the entire continent of the other side, which surrounds the real sea beyond. Everything here inside the strait we're talking about seems nothing but a harbour with a narrow entrance, whereas whereas that is really is an ocean out there, and the land that embraces it all the way around truly deserves to be called a continent. Now on this Isle of Atlantis, a great and marvellous royal power, power established itself and ruled not the whole island, but many of the other lands and other parts of the continent as well. What's more, their rule extended even inside the strait over Libya, over Libya, as far as Egypt and over Europe as far as central Italy. I'm not going to pronounce that ancient word. Now one day this power gathered all of itself together and set out to enslave all of the territory inside the strait, including your region and ours, in one fell swoop. Then it was that your city's might shone bright with ex- excellence and strength for all mankind to see, preeminent among all others in the nobility of her spirit and in her use of all the arts of war. She first rose to the leadership of the Greek cause. Later, forced to stand alone, deserted by her allies, she reached a point of extreme peril. Nevertheless, she overcame the invaders and erected her monument of victory. She prevented the enslavement of those not yet enslaved and generously freed all of all the rest of us who lived within the boundaries of Hercules. Sometime later, excessively violent earthquakes and floods occurred, and after the onset of an unbearable day and a night, your entire warrior force sank below the earth all at once, and the Isle of Atlantis likewise sank below the sea and disappeared. That that is how the ocean in that region has come to be even now unnavigable and unexplorable, obstructed as it is by a layer of mud at a shallow depth, the residue of the island as it settled. Um, so that's the classic story. Um, we sort of know Atlantis sank beneath the yeah. ocean. There's like not a lot of detail in there. It's just like, yeah, well, it sank. <laughs> well, so the Atlantis story crops up again in more detail in Plato's Critias, which is the character who tells the story in Plato's Timaeus. So, He's building a whole universe there, isn't he, he Plato? Is. The Plato universe. <laughs> the PU. The PU. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> okay. Um, so he's, uh, he says, And Poseidon, receiving for his lot the land of... Receiving for his lot the island of Atlantis, begat children by a mortal woman and settled them in a part of the island which I will describe. Looking towards the sea, but in the centre of the whole island, there was a plain which is said to have been the fairest of all plains and very fertile. Near the plain again, and also in the centre of the island at a distance of about 50 stadia, who knows what that is, there was a mountain not very high 
any side. In this mountain dwelt one of the earth-born primeval men of that country whose name was Evanor, and he had a wife named Lucipi. I'm sorry. Lucipi? I don't know. And And they had only a daughter who was called Clato. The maiden had already reached womanhood when her father and mother died. Poseidon fell in love with her and had, and had intercourse with her, and breaking the ground enclosed the hill in which she dwelt all around, making alternate zones of sea and land larger and smaller, encircling one another, there two of land and three of water. Um, so basically what he means is that you had circles, so you had like a central circle, and then you had a moat, and then a, another circle, and then a moat, and then another circle, and then a moat, and then you had the sea. Okay. And then you had like a little like strait that cut through all the circles to form the harbour. Okay. But it's Plato. (laughs) Um, The quote then goes on in a helpful summary for the... um, So in a helpful summary that I got from the ancient history encyclopedia, they basically summarized all the other stuff that Plato said, which was a lot because I read it and I wasn't going to quote it. Um, The island was mountainous and rose straight from the sea. It had fertile central plains with a central hill surrounded by rings of sea and land, which were created by Poseidon to protect his people. Plato, Plato tells that the first king was Atlas, and thus the land was called Atlantis, and the, around, the ocean around it, Atlantic. Um, the land of Atlantis produced trees, metals, abundant, abundant food, and was inhabited by many creatures, including elephants. The people of Atlantis lived well. They domesticated animals, irrigated their crops. Cities were built with harbors and fine temples. Bridges and canals with walls and gates were constructed to join the rings of the sea around the island. These latter were then decorated with bronze and tin. Such was the abundance of the resources. At the center of the city was a temple to Poseidon, which was faced with silver in its entirety and given a roof of ivory. The whole complex was then surrounded by a wall of pure gold, decorated with golden statues. The city had fountains of hot and cold water, bathhouses, gymnasia, a horse racing track, and a huge fleet of warships. The population was enormous, um, and the army could field a force of 10,000 chariots. Religious practices are then described, and these involve the chasing and sac- sacrificing of bulls, which is normal for Poseidon wor- worshippers. Quite simply put, this race on Atlantis was the most populous, technologically advanced, powerful, and prosperous ever seen at that time. If it was real. But that's sort of like the story of Atlantis. So they had an extremely technologically advanced race, um, race of people, but it's their city, due to a natural disaster, sank beneath the sea. So you can sort of see the parallels to yeah. the Atlantis in that that the story that they use in um, Stargate. They Atlantis. do a good job of being of interpreting and be like, oh, what if it was this? And you think about it, it does sort of have the look. Like it's not obviously it doesn't have like concentric circles with like alternating sea and land, but it does have like that sort of like it has the central spire and then it has like the the harbor bits. The yeah, docks. there's different bits. Kind of looks like, like a, a snowflake yeah. or a star. A star is better because it's space. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So you can sort of see like the, their interpretation um, of the story went into crafting that. Um, in my recommendations, I am going to mention it now because we're talking about the history of Lannis. Um, and yeah, I've decided that I'm not going to do links anymore. I've decided that I'm giving up on complete and total transparency for my research. Instead, I'm going to give recommendations on things that are related or interesting to do with the episode we're doing. So for instance, on Disney Plus, there is a documentary called Atlantis Rising, which is produced by James Cameron. And it's about using Plato's text 
and other ancient sources to find the city of Atlantis. Ooh, that's and cool. it is very interesting and they think they may have a possible site That for sounds it. awesome. Because for those who really... don't know, James Cameron loves going on yeah. submersible well, rides. He, lo- he loves the unexplored he didn't, bottom of the yeah, ocean. So he produced this one. He didn't actually go on the expedition. Nah. It was his um, one of the guys who works with him on those sorts of things who yeah. went and did it and a bunch of like other... Um, like Spanish and Italian sort That's of. That's cool. It's weird. He's just like, I, I'm a famous movie director, but also I'm obsessed with the bottom well, of the I action. I think he like, he does the movies to fund, fund. his projects. Yeah. Look, if you can, if you it, can do he says at the movies start, to fund your passion project <laughs> yeah. that is the bottom of the yeah. ocean, why not? He's, yeah, because he was like talking. He's like, I've like ever since I was like a kid, I was interested in like ancient cultures, like the Minoans. And I was like, holy shit, James Cameron, <laughs> damn. Yeah, so it's a really interesting documentary. I highly recommend it. Whether or not you buy into everything that they're they're peddling, it's so interesting to watch. And yeah, they have they might have a possible site for Atlantis. We don't know yet. They haven't ex- excavated anything, but like it'd be so cool if they found yeah, it. Yeah, it'd be sick. Um, they did find some evidence that said that there was potentially a technologically advanced peoples in that area, um, which is near it's near Spain, sort of. The language of the show, so it's English. You get some Czech, uh, Czech from Zelenka, but it's not translated. It's all about his intonation, which I do enjoy. Yeah, it's usually it's usually it sounds, him sounds, being annoyed or yeah, something. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like he's frustrated. There is ancient and wraith written, but all the aliens speak English. Um, no translations. Yeah, you don't ever. The only time you ever hear ancient spoken, it's through the translation of a whale. So yeah. it's not Yeah, <laughs> great. and it just sounds like whale noises, yeah. sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whale's just like, I'm trying, I'm trying really hard. <laughs> this is I'm what I think it best. sounds like, but this was like a thousand years ago that my grandfather, they tried to teach my grandfather to speak <laughs> ancient. Also, I'm a whale. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good episode, though. I've recently watched that one. So now we're getting into mythology, lore, and legend. So this is where we come back to what you said about the Wraith, them not being based in any sort of mythology. Well, I see now that I I missed a big obvious one. (laughs) Yes. Well, vampires are not based necessarily in mythology, but they are based in folklore, so they are included. Um, I'd like to say that a lot of the information from this, or some of it anyway, and this is just, I just need to, I just need to tell everyone that I did this because not like... No one does university like this. So when I was in Canada, I know a lot about vampires now because when I went to study in Canada, one of the classes I took was a cultural history of vampires. That sounds awesome. It was a minor film studies class. Basically, what we did was I would go to a three-hour class and we'd watch vampire movies. We had two set texts um, aside from that, Dracula the book and Perfume the book. That was it. I watched vampire movies for an entire semester. It was awesome. What would you say your favorite vampire movie is? Oh, man, then? there's so many good <laughs> ones, though. Like, because we watched some weird ones, like a lot of foreign ones as well. Um, I find Let the Right One In kind of creepy, so I probably wouldn't say that one. But then it's so it's very Nordic. Like, that's why it's super creepy. You're like, oh. Um, I did really enjoy Lost Boys just because it's so 80s and there's dirt bikes and vampires. Oh, I've heard of Lost Boys. Yeah, it's quite enjoyable. It's it's just a good a good time. It's so campy. Um, we watch so many though. I do enjoy the story of Perfume and like Ben. What's his face is in it? The British one who plays Q. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So he's the main guy and he's super creepy in it. But I enjoyed the story of that more than I enjoyed watching the movie of it. 
I do always love a good Dracula movie. I think, though, if I'm being true, I love, um, I think it's Herzog's Nosferatu because it's so weird. I was looking at that the other day and I was like, should I watch Nosferatu? I think you should because it's so, like, the the way they do the vampire, like, they're just like, armadillos are scary, right? But also, <laughs> like, the way they do the vampire is very, it's very different. Um, so it's very, yeah, I think I like that one best just because it's weird. And also Herzog was like sort of a weird guy. He's like, I want a boat in this scene. So you're going to haul a boat up a mountain, which he did for one of his other movies, I think. <laughs> it was just, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good one. It was, I got, I was looking at a bunch of movies like Bram Stoker's Dracula and stuff. Cause Dracula came out on Netflix and yeah. I'm like, I wish you'd go and watch all the I original not, stuff. I watched like two episodes of that, but I wasn't super into it. Yeah. I think I watched like one and a half. Yeah. Oh, it's not, it's not really for me. Um, there was a really good, well, not necessarily good, but it was interesting to watch. And if you're watch, if you're doing a vampire movie roundup, I do recommend watching it. There was this weird, like Belgium sort of movie with, it was like rich vampires who like steal stuff. It was good though, but I can't remember what it was called, but it was good. Um, so yeah, just so you know, I did that class. Best class ever. If you're in Canada, going to UVic, take a cultural history of vampires. And now we will learn some more about them. So vampires are creatures often fanged that prey on humans, generally by consuming their blood. Many different cultures have a conception of vampires, though the European tradition of vampire folklore is the one that's best known, usually because it's associated with Dracula. Um, because there is a long history of walking corpses and blood-sucking ghouls in folklore, it is difficult to pin down a distinct set of characteristics that constantly that consistently um, go to like that are only belonging to vampires. So central to the vampire myth is the consumption of human blood or other essence, such as body, bodily fluids or psychic energy, followed closely by the possession of sharp teeth or fangs with which to facilitate that doing that, taking that vital essence. In most depictions, vampires are undead, that is to say, having been somehow re- revived after death. Um, and many are said to rise nightly from their graves or coffins, often necessarily containing their native soil or the soil they like their graveyard soil. Vampires are typically said to be of pale skin and range in appearance from grotesque to um, really, really pretty and um, sparkly if you're a Stephanie Meyer fan. You've been actually rewatching Twilight. I watched all of them. <laughs> actually, I, I say rewatched. I rewatched Twilight and then for yeah. the fir- I watched for the first time the rest of them. <laughs> okay. Um, another frequently cited physical ca- characteristic is the inability to cast a reflection or shadow which often translates into an ability to be photographed or recorded on film. A person may become a vampire in a variety of ways, the most common of which is to be bitten by another vampire. Other methods include sorcery, committing suicide, contagion, or having a cat jump over a person's corpse. (laughs) That one's just like the odd one out. (laughs) Which one of these is not like the others? There's so many different types of, like, so many different conceptions of vampires and different traditions of what is it with weird things like we learned that like like mummies have a thing with cats and now vampires have a thing with cats man cats man you just should have cats clearly they're very good at warding (laughs) away the undead miscellaneous undead undead. um some people believe that babies born with teeth or over christmas or between christmas and epiphany were predisposed to becoming vampires well vampires usually do not die of disease or other normal human afflictions and they are indeed often to have said faster than normal healing capabilities. There are various methods for their destruction. The most popular of those includes a wooden stake through the heart, fire, decapitation, and exposure to sunlight. Vampires are often depicted as being repelled by garlic, running water, or Christian implements such as cruc- crucifixes and holy water. 
In some stories, vampires may enter a home only if they've been invited, and in others, they may be distracted by the scattering of objects such as seeds or grains or salt um, that they are then compelled to count, which allows you to then escape. So there's a it's similar to Fae folklore. There is like a story that if you scatter salt yeah, in front of a the, fairy, they have to count oh, it. Oh, it's an episode of Supernatural, Supernatural where he's going to kill the knee. Yeah. And that's actually, fun fact, that is Woolsey. Yeah, that is Stargate Woolsey. Yeah, it is. It's all he's connected. In, he's in everything, actually. He's also in Star Trek. He's in Star Trek Voyager. He's oh, the, I think like, I've seen medical, screenshots of it, The yeah. medical doctor. But he's, he's like a recording or something, a hologram. That's it. So we'll talk about examples of different vamp like vampiric creatures in folklore but you can sort of see all the connections from the tradition of vampires to the wraith so they feed on human life force which then drains their victim of life and they get older and age incrementally what's weird is they can also return it most vampires can't do that that is a uh, later on development yes um they have suckers on their hands as opposed to fangs or anything like that they are basically immune to most diseases they can heal very fast so you can shoot them multiple times and as long as they feed they can technically live and they are pale most of them have white hair so quite and like it's a modern interpretation and they and like a lot of their queens have black hair which is just more traditionally vampire so they often have widow's peaks and black hair yes (laughs) it's interesting that they're run by queens i think that's a really cool structure for their society in that they're a hive mind but they're run by it's like it's like yeah it's like a bee yeah and they have, like, yeah, their queen rates. It's just cool. And then they have drones as yeah. well. Like it's, yeah. yeah. So some examples of different vampiric creatures in folklore include the Empusai and the Lamai, which are the ancient Greece, usually Grecian equivalent of vampires and succubi. Um, so vampiric ghosts and demons. So they're fearsome creatures which assume the forms of beautiful women to lure young men to their beds and to feed on their flesh and blood. In terms of folklore, most... Um, ancient versions of vampires are women, not men. It's just an interesting fact. There's the Roman Strix. So the Strix um, in mythology, um, in Roman mythology, was a bird of ill omen, the product of metamorphosis that fed on human flesh and blood. Um, Strigoi in Roman, in Romanian mythology, and then the Strigas in Slavic mythology are related to this. Specifically, the Strigoi are related to the creation of Dracula. So he that's one of the traditions that Dracula evolved from. Yeah. In um in The Witcher, these are all like different versions of it. You can hunt a bunch of different ones. They're yeah. all different. So cool. Yeah, if you want the, to learn more, go yes, play The Witcher. Also Witcher TV series deals with Astriga. Yes. The Aswang is an umbrella term for various shape shifting e- evil spirits in Filipino folklore. Um, Maximo Ramos refers to the Aswan concept in the Philippines as being understood as beliefs about five types of mythical beings identifiable with certain, cre- certain creatures in the European tradition. So there's the blood-sucking vampire, the self-segmenting viscera man-eating were-dog, the vindictive witch, and the ghoul. Um, this means that when Philippine, Filipino folk speak generally um, of these creatures, they refer to physical traits, habitats, or activities of one of these five five types of mythical beings. Um, Spirits Podcast does an episode on the Aswang, which is really interesting. They mainly talk about it as sort of like a vampiric viscera eating thing. So um, I believe the, the tradition they're talking about is uh, it uses its tongue as a proboscis to enter a pregnant woman's... It, it eats the baby. It eats the fetus yep. and feeds on that. I, I, its, I get it. You don't need to talk about it It's anymore. gross tongue as a way to do that. <laughs> um, they're really, they're really inter- the Aswang is a really interesting folklore tradition. Um, I have included a link specifically to the paper on that just because it's wild, wild and gnarly. 
Um, but it's it's interesting that you get, you get different types of um, vampires everywhere. So coming to our hometown, Australia, Australia represent. Um, there's the Yara Mayahu. So they live mostly in. Thick- so the, I imagine this is an indigenous mm-hmm. legend or mm-hmm. myth. Yeah. Yep. So they live mostly in thick leafy trees and prefer the wild fig tree. They do not hunt for their food, but simply pounce upon a person and place their hands and feet upon the victim, draining his blood. The Yaramahu does not try to suck all the blood from the body, but leaves sufficient to keep the victim alive while he walks around and gets an appetite. After he returns, he lies down on the ground facing the victim and crawls up like a goanna and opens his mouth wide and sucks his prey into his mouth head first. He then rises and stands on his little legs and dances around to the plate prey as well inside his stomach. Then he goes to a river or a pool of water and drinks copious amounts of water before falling asleep. When he wakes up, he vomits the remains of his recent meal. He will check several times to see if his prey is not feigning death by poking him with a stick and tickling him. If he gets no response and goes to sleep, the victim can use the opportunity to run away. It's like the goofiest sounding vampire ever. If this happens to you too much, if you get caught by a Yaramahayahu too much, you become one. Because each time it drains you of more blood and you become more red and small. Is very strange, but very interesting. Um, and then there's also um, one from China because we're going a bit of a around the world tour. So there's the Chinese Jiangxi, which means hard or stiff. So um, it, it also originally meant Jiangxi also usually meant corpse. So this is a cursed stole, cursed soul, which has been stiffened by rigor mortis and unable to move beyond a hop with its arms outstretched in front of it for balance. So they sort of... Um, hop after you with their arms outstretched like a poker stick. Um, the Jiangxi are commonly said to come at, come out at night to, to sustain themselves as well as grow more powerful. The Jiangxi would steal the key, um, the qi, the life force um, of living humans. They can be repelled by mirrors, the call of a rooster, the hooves of a black donkey, and the wood of a peach tree. Um, while the deceased's devilish transformation can be caused by an improper burial, magical rituals, ritual, suicide, or possession. So different conceptions of vampiric creatures all around the world everyone's you know got a version of their vampire we're all we've always been afraid of something that is dead coming back to steal our life yeah it's a very scary concept yeah so there's just different types of vampires in the world and the wraith are heavily vampiric based and they look cool but they look cool while doing it they have a cool design they do also their costuming is really cool yeah but their skin is kind of gross. It looks kind of shiny and yeah, slimy. Yeah, it's very... Like, it's all prosthetic with yeah. a bunch of makeup. Like, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. No, 100%. It's You can tell it's prosthetic yeah. because it's a 2000 show. You're like, I can see <laughs> the prosthetics on it. But it looks cool. And, yeah, they're just a really good bad guy to have in terms of what the show is. It makes sense to have, like, a... Like, you could have any alien race, but to have a vampiric alien race is just a really cool idea. Yeah. In terms of other myth- mythology, SG-1 us- utilizes way more than Atlantis because it deals with the Goa Uld and the Asgard a bit more. So you get Apophis and Ra in um, Stargate and then Stargate. No, you get Apophis in Stargate and then Apophis and Ra in Stargate SG-1. And then um, Thor in SG-1, which I mainly remember from the episode Thor's Hammer. Yeah, it's one episode. that's kind of where you learn about the Asgard being... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Hermiod is the main Asgard scene in SGA or Stargate Atlantis, aside from the Vanir who come up in season five. We talked about them a bit before. The Vanir, also known as the Lost Tribe or Dark Asgard, are a group of Asgard in the Pegasus galaxy that live inside powerful and resilient battle suits. Um, in Norse mythology, the Aesir, which is 
what we would consider what what is touted to be like Hermia, the main Asgard. The Aesir um, live as on Asgard as one of two tribes of deities. So Asgard is a place, unless you're talking about uh, Stargate Atlantis or Thor Ragnarok, in which case both in both times Asgard is a people, not a place. <laughs> There's, they're There's connected. connected. They're That's connected. the second little connection we've made. Yeah. Um, and then the second tribe is obviously the Vanir who live on Vanaheim. So they're pulling directly from that, except, again, with Thor, Thor, same as Thor Ragnarok, people not place. Um, Hermiod is a minor Aesir figure in Norse mythology. Um, he is best known um, from the medieval Ice, Icelandic Snorri Sturluson's prose Edda um, from an episode in which he travels to the underworld on... Odin's horse um, to success uh, to to plead with Hell, the goddess of death, to return his brother Balder to the world of the living. So he's mo- so it's like he's like because Balder is famous. Balder is famous, <laughs> and it's like I'm just also Balder's brother. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is wild. He's not well known because Balder has a lot of brothers. Yes. So um, this is like a quote from a ver- like a version of that prose Edda. So it says, But of Hermiod, it is to be told that he rode nine nights through deep and dark valleys and did not see light until he came upon, came to the Jalar River and rode on to the Jalar Bridge, which is thatched with shining gold. Modgud is the name of the many, of, is the name of the May who guards the bridge. She asked him for his name and of what kin he was, saying that the day, bef- day before there rode five kingdoms or bands of dead men over the bridge but she added it does not shake less under you alone and you do not have the hue of dead men why do you ride the way to hell he answered i am to ride to hell to find boulder have you seen him pass this way she answered that boulder had ridden over the gajala gajala bridge adding but downward and northward lies the way to hell then herm hermiod or hermod it depends on how you're writing it um and then Hermiod rode on till he came to Hell's Gate. He alighted from his horse, drew the girths tighter, remounted him, clapped the spurs into him, and the horse leaped over the gate with so much force that he never touched it. Thereupon Hermiod de- proceeded to the hall and alighted from his steed. He went in and saw there sitting on the foremost seat of his brother, sitting on the foremost seat, his brother Boulder. He tarried there overnight. In the morning, he asked Hell whether Boulder might ride home with him, and, to- and ha- told how great weeping there was among the, um, the Azir. But Hell replied that it should not. It should now be tried whether Boulder was so much beloved as was said. If all things she said, both quick and dead, will weep for him, then he shall go back to the Azir. But if anything refuses to shed tears, then he shall remain with Hell. Hermiot arose, and Boulder accompanied him out of the hall. He took the ring Dropnir and sent it as a keepsake to Odin. Nana sent Frigga kerchief and other gifts, and to Fuller she sent a ring. Thereupon Hermiod rode back and came to Asgard, where he reported the tidings he had seen and heard. If you don't know the end of that story, Loki disguises himself as a giantess and refuses to wait for Balder, so he has to stay dead. So that's that's all you really get of Hermiod in Norse mythology. But that's his main thing. He's the one who goes to plead with hell for Balder's life. And then the other main references that Stargate Atlantis has to mythology is in its spaceships. So they have the Daedalus, the Aurora, and the Orion. Which is, the Daedalus is Greek. Are they all Greek? They're all Greek. Yeah. Um, so Daedalus was a craftsman in Greek mythology. He does three well-known things. One, he builds a cow suit so the queen Pasiphae can fuck a bull. Pasiphae married King um, Minos of Crete and bore him a number of sons and daughters. 
As punishment for some offence against the god, committed either by herself or her husband, she was cursed with lust for the king's finest bull. The queen enlisted the help of Daedalus to build her an animate wooden cow wrapped in bovine skin. Hidden inside the contraption, she coupled with the bull and conceived the minotaur, the bull-man hybrid child. So yeah, that's his one, one, like his first famous act. His second famous act, he builds a labyrinth for for Minos to imprison the Minotaur after his wife gives birth to it. Because, you know, it's a man-eating, half-bull, half-man-child. Yes. Three, he is imprisoned by Minos, and in order to escape, he crafts wings for both himself and his son Icarus, made of feathers and wax. He warned Icarus not to fly too high to the sun, as it would melt the wax, and not to lie low to the seawater, as it would soak the feathers. Icarus does not listen. His, his wings melt and he drowns. Yeah, so that's what I know, I know him as from Daedalus and Icarus or the Icarus tale. Yeah. That's I did not I wasn't aware of the other ones. Yeah, so that's his three famous acts as a person. Um Orion was a hunter in Greek mythology and the companion of Artemis. Um, hence his constellation also being known as the hunter. There are various accounts of his death. Um, his life is not as interesting as his death. That's why there's various accounts of that and people don't really care about what he did while he was alive. In one version, he desired to marry Artemis, but her brother Apollo tricked the goddess into shooting him with an arrow as he was swimming far out to sea. In another version, Artemis slew him after he raped um, her, ha- her handmaiden Opus. The most common story, however, is that Orion um, bragged he would hunt down and kill all the beasts of Earth, so Gaia, or Mother Earth, sent a scorpion to destroy him. And then Orion and Scorpion were afterwards placed among the stars as the posing com- constellations. One rises as the other sets. Um, then there's Aurora or Eos. Um, so Aurora is just the Roman name for Eos. So Eos was the rosy-fingered goddess of the dawn. She and her siblings Helios the sun and Selene the moon were numbered among the second generation of Titan gods. Eos rose into the sky from the river Okinos, or Oceanus at the start of each day and with her rays of light dispersed the mists of night. The Trojan prince Tithonos became her official concept. I mean, she had other lovers, but this one is the one that stuck because his story is... Anytime a goddess asks for their mortal lover to be made immortal, there's always a catch. So if you're going to ask that, you have to be very specific about you want what you want. You have to present a list of demands. I want him to be immortal and this, and this, and this, and this. Because Zeus will trick you. <laughs> so what happens with Tithonos is when Eos posi- petitions Zeus for his immortality, she neglected to also request eternal youth. In time, he shriveled up by old age and was transformed into a grasshopper. So basically, he spent, aside from the time that he turned into a grasshopper, he spent the rest of his time previous to that lying on a bed unable to move because he had eternal life but not eternal youth. So he just kept growing older and older and older. Zeus is a dick. Yeah, he is. (laughs) But also, again, if you're petitioning the gods for the immortality of your mortal lover, make a list. Present it and say, I want this, you need but a, also this. You need to present a very, an ironclad contract. You do. And yeah, get that in writing. No verbal contracts with the gods. Always bad. All right. So at the end of mythology, we come to our philosophy or worldview. We don't have a lot for this one, although it does sort of cover things we've already talked about. So the main one is exploration. The classic to boldly go, as Star Trek would say. It's all of, That's the point of the Stargate is to take you on interplanetary and intergalactic travel into other planets for usually for resources and technological advancement again technological and scientific advancement it does force you to ask questions like is it ethical to adapt the technology of other people to further your own ends because that's what they do humans only some humans can use the ancient technology so they develop a gene so that way gene therapy so that way everyone can use it 
and that's sort of abusing that. And then it's also, also like gene therapy. Like I don't know if you're familiar with Gattaca or anything. I like do. it's I a am. big deal that they kind of just skip over in this. Oh, yeah. it gives you the ancient gene, but it's like you can change genes. Yeah, that is, and that's it's like yeah, it's like desire. It's 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 like one of those like. Like, they're, they're just saying, oh, we'll just give you the ancient gene. But, like, that is one step away from designer children. Yeah. And, like, they do talk about, like, cloning and stuff in this. Like, that is an issue that they face. The, like, people 100%, If aside from the fact that it's owned by the U.S. military, and, like, at least in this, they're, they're put forth as good. Like, they have the Stargate Command who sort of controls everything and make sure that it doesn't, you know, leak out into the public because they don't want the public to know. But also there's things, there's very, there's lots of scientists, I assume, who would, or like people out there who would be like, I can have, I can design my own baby. I can choose everything about them and make sure they don't, they never have, like they're basically a super baby. People would do that, 100%. I know someone who said he would do that the other day. He's one of he's my friend's boyfriend. He was like, if I could design my baby, I would. And I was like, no. There's that's movies bad. about why you shouldn't do. Yeah, that. he doesn't care though. Um, so like, aside from like, yeah, it's asking those questions. But yeah, because everything's that they're sort of putting forth the idea that the U.S. military are doing are doing the right thing, I guess, by like controlling all that information and and like not letting it seep out. But like, there's issues to do with that as well. The fact that it's owned by the military and like Stargate Command is a military operation that has its own issues. Yeah. Well, um, there's multiple episodes where um, the, they, uh, a civilian or someone else has gotten access to yeah. technology yes. from this and then they've that's caused problems. They've had to go in and save it. So yeah. it's like, they're not the problem. It's the people who are like outside. Like one person builds a replicator. There's the weather yeah. one. And then there was another one I was thinking of. The the guy who steals nanites to save his daughter. Like yeah. there's a bunch of... Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's probably what would happen. But also you have to think about the danger of it all being owned by a single military unit, yes. which is belongs to the US government. Like it's American TV show. I get that. But there's also a big issue with that. And like they say, it's an international expedition. But you think about the main characters because they all wear the patch that says their country on the side. They have like, they have, and like all the actors are basically um, Canadian or American. But like they have Zelenka who's Czech. They have Carson who's Scottish. And then they have Rodney who's Canadian. And everyone else is American or an alien. <laughs> so like you don't see that much representation of their international expedition. Yeah. Like I think you see people like walk around the background with different country things. But like all the main characters, the speaking roles are Canadian, American and one American playing a Czech. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, oh, he was. Um, and Carson playing uh, Scottish, Scottish, who is um, he's American as well. Yeah, well, he's. I think he's actually. No, or is he Canadian? I think he's Canadian. So I think both Zelenka and Carson are Canadian-born, but their parents, their parents come from the country that they were cast as. So okay, the guy playing Carson's parents are Scottish. The guy playing um, Zelenka's parents are Czech, and then um, Rodney McKay is can is can is Canadian, but he was born in Britain. So. They, like, have a little bit, but, like, not a lot. <laughs> and, like, yeah, it's like supposed to be an international expedition, but how much do you really see? So there is really a very strong American component. And I don't know, that troubles me a little bit. The fact, Like, because, like, it's not like they, they talk about, like, the UN, like the United Nations and things like that. But it's not, it's so obviously heavily controlled by Stargate Command and, and the American military. And they have, they do, they have, like, an oversight committee, but yeah. that's, like, also, like, a an American-run yeah. committee. Like they're, like, a... Yeah. And, you, you and like, yeah, it. it's just, like, if you have something like a Stargate, that should not belong to one country alone. 
And then also you have to consider, well, not consider, I would say generally it is unethical to conduct to conduct science experiments on sentient life forms without research or, content, or consent, regardless of your intentions. So that's mainly talking about the retrovirus, but also they do some other things as well. Yeah. Um, and then you get like, like, I get Michael doesn't care about consent, but he's the one who does the Aretas bug experiments. There's a lot of science going on without, without oversight. And they also like to turn, like the the heroes, yeah. like to turn on machines without knowing well, what that's they do. And then that plays into like their, so the Wraith already were there. Yeah. But there's a big theme of like creating your own enemy. The yeah. ancients created the Wraith. Yeah. Um, these guys. Well, the create... Raiders didn't. The ancients didn't create the Wraith. They like because they. Yeah, they put the people. On they the put the people on the planet with their Raiders bug. That's not yeah. really their fault. Um, but they create but, Michael, who's yeah. one of their biggest enemies. Yeah. They um. The ancients create the nanites. Mm. They reprogram the, or they yeah. change their program. Like, and they made the rep. They made the replicators. Yeah, and they made this. So it's yeah, big thing of like big thing of like yes, science, science you creating, creating your, your own, own enemy. enemy. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, there's a lot of like yeah, science experiments that go that go wrong. And I get they need conflict for the TV show, but also what they do tends to be quite unethical. And like it's it you sort of get that a lot with McKay because he. Like yes, he tends to fix the things, but he also tends to create the problem in the first place. But his ambition, he's smart enough yeah, to, his, to he deal thinks with he's it. too smart and he has ambition and he just goes for it. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that it sort of covers is the duality of human nature. So it is mentioned, um, I think, in the show at one point that Hermiod has to basically stand trial for the human race in front of the other Asgard as to whether we should be allowed to access advanced technology. Because they basically want to promote us to the fifth race in like their their sort of because there's like a council right like a of council. like the sentient races yeah so they want to promote it they they're considering us for the fifth race and they ask Hermiod because he's been assigned to the Daedalus um, and has lots of experience with humans whether or not we should be allowed to become the fifth race um, and access like Asgard technology and um, Lantian technology and things like that and his response is that without a doubt we will use technology for war but also in the pursuit of peace and helping people because we are human. That's what we do. So like, so it also covers good and evil by default, but also within the, like within human nature, like we have the potential to do great evil, but also great good. So it's, it's talking about like where we stand on that. And it does sort of cover that in the show. Like there are choices that they make that aren't good, but a lot of what, what is, like what a lot of the missions in the show are in the pursuit of helping people or pursuing peace um and like we probably would have made a truce with the wraith if we thought we could it's just that by by their nature they have to feed on us for our life force and that sucks and we can't let them do that because we don't want to die but generally it's it's a very like sort of show about managing you know warfare but also peace and helping people and when you have to fight, and when you have to talk, things like that. Anything to say? No, I, to say? I agree with that. All right. Well, in that case, we'll just go on to my recommendations for this week, which is what we're doing now. Um, so, Stargate Atlantis, all seasons are available on Stan if you're in Australia. If you're not, I'm sorry. I can't help you. If you want to know more about Norse mythology in a very easy to digest sort of beginner way, Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman is a great place to start. He's a very good writer. Um, and he, he, he illustrates the North's mist in a way that's very fun and easy to read. Again, Atlantis Rising on Disney+, Plus, a really good documentary about the historical origins of the Atlantis myth 
and whether or not it's real and whether or not we can find it. And then also uh, there is a link I have included, which is the paper on Aswangs because so interesting and so weird and just not so different from the European tradition of vampiric folklore. So I think everyone should just go have a read of that and, and be a little bit creeped out. Sweet. Well, those uh, links will all be available on the uh, Second World Problems part of our website mm-hmm. at Uh Thank you for yet again enlightening me in a world that I you so, know this so loved. One. I do know, but it's still nice. I still learn something new yep. every time. Something for you to go go outside and watch. Yeah. Because I, it's on stand. This show is just so bad because I'm already watching so much. And yeah. then I'm like, oh, I want to rewatch Stargate. But it is so good. I am, I am rewatching it at the moment. And like and now I'm also tempted to like watch all of SG One. <laughs> yeah, I That's don't an know if I can. I don't know if I can commit to that. But five seasons I can do. I'm already halfway through season yeah, three. Yeah, it's much forty minute episodes, twenty episode seasons ish. Yeah, ish is usually about twenty between 21. twenty and twenty two. I think. Yeah. So uh, definitely, I I reckon we recommend it. It was a formative oh, childhood. It wouldn't TV be on the show, show if we didn't recommend yeah. it. Um, but yeah, until next time, uh, I've been Morgan. And I've been Finn, and thank you for coming to my lecture. (laughs) Bye. This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.